All righty. Well, good morning. Hey, let's grab our Bibles and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 13. should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. Uh, we are making our way through Matthew's Gospel in our ongoing sermon series, The King and His Kingdom. And uh, this morning we come to a new chapter, chapter 13, as we take a look at part one of the revelation of the King, as we enter into the eight parables that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 13. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I love these parables, so it's going to be a good few weeks here as we uh, sort of ramp into Christmas season. So Matthew chapter 13, would you pray with me, and then we'll dive right in. Father, we ask your blessing now upon the preaching and the teaching and the hearing and the living out of your word. Father, we're grateful for these parables that uh, come from the lips of your very Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we have much to learn about your work and your kingdom work, uh, even now during the church age, as we anticipate the return of the King, your Son, Jesus, at the end of the age. And so, Father, teach us, we pray, from the words of Christ and all of God's people together said, Amen. Well, there once was a pastoral candidate, and he was fresh out of seminary. His name was Sam. And he was being interviewed by a church search committee, much like the one that interviewed me so many years ago. And it was his very first interview. And like I was, he was a bit nervous. And so the committee recognized that Sam was a little nervous, right? And so they started out with what they thought would be an easy introductory question. So they said, Sam, what part of the Bible do you like best? And Sam nervously thought about it. And he said, "Uh, the parables. I like the parables the best. And then one search committee member said, oh, great. Um, Well, which one? Which of the parables do you like the best? And poor Sam, he sort of had a brain lapse, right? His hands began to sweat. Uh, His veins sort of uh, began to pop on his head. And he wasn't sure how to answer. So out of nowhere, he just said, well, I'll tell you which parable is my favorite. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there there was a man. And he came down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell, but he fell among thieves. And and the thorns, the thorns, they grew up, and they choked out that man. And he didn't have any money. And so he went to see the the queen of Sheba. He went to see the queen of Sheba, and and she gave that man 10,000 talents of gold. And, well, he, he bought himself a chariot, and he was driving that chariot under a tree. And, well, he had long hair, and he got caught in that tree, and it left him hanging there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It left him hanging there many days and many nights. And, and the ravens came, and they brought food and water for him to drink. And as he was hanging there one night, he was sleeping, and his wife, his wife's name was Delilah. That's right. Delilah came, and she cut his hair off, and he dropped, and, well, he fell among the, the, the stony ground. And so he decided to go to Jerusalem. There he saw another queen, Queen Jezebel, and she, she was sitting high up in the, the, the tower. And so he said, throw her down, and they threw her down. And the fragments of her were picked up, and there were 12 baskets full. That's right, 12 baskets full. Now let me ask you this question. Whose wife will she be in the day of judgment? And so they didn't know how to respond to that. They had never heard of such a parable, but he was an educated man, and so they figured, well, it had to be in the Bible. And so they hired him right then on the spot. (laughs) You know, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you likely recognize at least some of the pieces of the parables or stories found in Sam's 
parable. But rest assured, right, um, that is not the type of parables found in the Bible. However, the next few weeks, as we work our way into Christmas, we will be looking at eight real parables found in the Bible, all from the lips of Jesus, out of Matthew chapter 13. So I want to sort of quickly catch us up as to where we've been and where we're going. So we are in a large section, chapters 11 and 12 and 13. You can take a look at the outline here. We have been working our way through outline here, outline here, maybe, yes, no, maybe so. Tim, is it going to work? Okay. Even if we don't have an outline... It's delayed. That's fine. Eventually, well, there it is, the outline, right? So we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We've seen the person of the king, right? His early life and ministry. We have seen the platform of the king, the Sermon on the Mount. We have seen the power of the king, as Matthew highlights eight of Jesus' miracles. And now we have been working through this section, the parables of the king. And the parables of the king focus on the rejection of Jesus and then the revelation that Jesus gives in light of that rejection. So in chapters 11 and 12, we saw the rejection of the king. And now in chapter 13, we will see the revelation of the king. Jesus is going to teach both the crowds and his disciples about a a change in his kingdom program. So here's what has been happening. As we began Matthew's gospel, Jesus bursts onto the scene, right? And he preaches the message of John the Baptist. He says, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is what? You remember? Is at hand, right? The kingdom of of heaven is at hand. I am Israel's king, and I am offering the kingdom of Israel to the nation. However, what we're going to see from basically chapter 12 on is that that is not going to be repeated. Jesus stops saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Rather, he's going to talk about the changes to the nature of God's kingdom in light of Israel's rejection of her king. They were given a choice, and they have made a tragic choice. They rejected the king, and thus his offer of the kingdom of Israel is going to be put on the table. Because to reject the king, of course, is to reject the kingdom. Jesus begins in chapter 12 and on through the rest of the gospel, he begins to talk about his death. He begins to talk about his crucifixion. He begins to talk about his resurrection and a shift in the kingdom paradigm, away from the kingdom of heaven to the church age. And so what we're going to see in chapter 13 is new information about what I will call an interim phase, an interim phase of God's kingdom, a parenthesis, if you will, which we call the church. In fact, as we look into chapter 13, Jesus is going to talk about these parables as the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, uh, something that has not yet been revealed, but Jesus himself is going to reveal it to us, and that is the church age. The church is the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth between his first coming and his second coming, right? It is the place where God rules over a particular people, a called out people, me and you, those of us who name the name of Christ. And we are, in a sense, priests to our king. However, the kingdom of Israel, it's going to come. Jesus will literally reign on, on a throne, on, in, in a literal kingdom over a revived nation of Israel, and yet that is yet to come. So Jesus is going to talk about this shift, 
if you will, in these eight parables that we're going to get. And so as we move from sort of a review into a preview, chapter 13, we see eight parables. You can uh, see them listed on the screen behind me. The first four of the parables are given to the crowds. And so they are addressed to the crowds. His disciples hear them, of course. Um, but the first four are pretty much pointed to the crowds. The final four parables are going to be directed to Jesus' disciples. Three of them, Jesus, thankfully, is going to explain to us. He's going to give us his interpretation, his meaning behind these parables. However, uh, only Jesus' disciples get that interpretation. The crowds just get the parables. They don't get the interpretation. So you can see on the screen behind me, hopefully, here's a list of the parables. We get the sower and the seed, uh, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the parable of leaven, the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl, the dragnet, and the parable of the household. Some of these parables are, are a little bit lengthier. Some of them are like one or two verses. And so for the next few weeks heading into Christmas, we are going to explore these marvelous parables. They are lovely. Just to sort of give us a, a bit of a preview as to their contents, I want to share with you what Dr. Mark Bailey, uh, president of Dallas Seminary, says. Uh, they basically are, uh, they come in pairs, right? So the first two parables are related, the second two parables are related, uh, the third, and so on and so forth. So he writes, and I quote, The first two parables relate to planting. Now, friends, we live in an agricultural town, do we not? So this should be very familiar to us, right? The first two parables relate to planting. The parable of the sower, which we'll get into next week, speaks of different responses to the message of the kingdom. The parable of the tares, parable number two, explains the origins of the conflict between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the enemy and announces that a final separation of the two groups will take place when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns at the end of the age. So the first two parables are all about planting. The second pair of parables, he says, utilizes the analogy of growth, right? So the mustard seed, it's the smallest of seeds, right? And yet it grows large, right? He says the mustard seed reveals the extent of the rapid international growth of the kingdom of heaven. And the leavening process addresses the internal and invisible dynamic of that growth. And so parables uh, 3 and 4 are all about the growth of the church, the growth of the kingdom. The next two parables, he says, address the value of the kingdom. The parable of the treasure, the hidden treasure, and the parable of the, of the pearl merchant. Whether, he says, whether one is looking or not, no sacrifice is too great for the kingdom of God. In other, in other words, how valuable is the kingdom of God? And then the final set of parables reveals our dual responsibilities. There's the parable of the dragnet. It teaches us that evangelism should be done without discrimination because at the end of the age, Jesus' discriminating judgment will occur. I love that parable. We'll get there in, in, in a few weeks. And then the final parable, that of the householder, encourages that we should teach both older and newer truths about the kingdom of heaven by disciples of the kingdom. So they come in pairs. We're going to work our way through it, and uh, it's going to be fantastic. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to look at, first of all, the place at which the parables are given in verses 1 and 2. And then I want to look at the plan of Jesus to use parables. Why does Jesus, even now, at this key moment in his life and ministry, why does he choose to use parables, sort of 
confusing, they can be sort of challenging means of communicating. So we'll, we'll look at the place of the parables. We'll look at the plan of Jesus to use parables in, in verse 3. And then we'll look at the purpose of the parables. We'll skip ahead to verses 10 through 17. Don't worry, next week we'll come, bu- come back and we'll pick up the first parable and its explanation, right? We'll do those together next week. But I want us to then close with the purpose of the parables. Why does Jesus choose to use this type of communication? Well, I hope you have your Bibles open. Let's take a look at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, as we take a look at the place, the place of the parables, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, and he sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he, could not, that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. The first thing I want us to notice is the timing of which the parables are given, right? Notice how the verse begins. What does it say, church? That same day, right? Well, what same day, right? What same day? Well, you just look backwards at the events in chapter 12, and you find out what happened at the very same day that Jesus begins to speak these parables about the paradigm shift of God's kingdom program. And what we're going to see is that the giving of the parables is a direct response to the Jews' rejection of him as their king. So what same day did he do this? Well, it was that same day. That same day when they accused him of being possessed by Satan. Remember that day? It was that same day. It was that same day when they demanded a sign from heaven to prove that he was Messiah. What same day? It was that same day. It was that same day when his mom and his brothers came and they wanted an audience with him. And most likely it was not a friendly conversation that they were going to have. That same day when his family rejected him. And he said, who is, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who are my sisters? And he pointed to his disciples. That same day when Jesus was rejected, then he began to share with them in parables, right? And so the parables are given as a direct response to the nation's rejection of him. And we can picture this scene, right? Matthew gives us some of the details. The the calm, blue seawaters sparkling in the sun. We can imagine Jesus with his back to the lake and him sitting down in sort of typical rabbinic fashion. And the the crowds are so large and they, they sit down on the seashore and they listen to him attentively. Now, friends, here's the irony, right? As hundreds of people came to, to listen to Jesus preach, what had, what had he called the crowds, that generation of Jews back in chapter 12? He, he had labeled them a wicked and adulterous generation. And so there are throngs of people and they, and they, they want to hear Jesus, but most of them had rejected him already. They were suspicious that he would be Israel's Messiah. And so he preaches to a mixed crowd. And that's very important as we get into the parables. Because who is going to be listening to these parables? Mostly people who have or will reject him as king. They don't believe that he's the Son of God. They don't believe he's the Messiah, for the most part. However, his disciples, are they there? Yeah, they're there. People who believe in him, yeah, they're there as well. And so Jesus utilizes 
the parables to speak to both crowds with dual purposes. We're going to see that in verse 10. So we see the place. Notice as we work our way into chapter uh, verse 3, we see the plan. Then, verse 3, he told them many things in parables, saying, and then we get the first parable. But let's just pause there. What is a parable? We're going to see eight of them, but we need to understand them before we get into them. What is a parable? Well, it's sort of a modern-day equivalent to a fable, if you will. So you might be familiar with Aesop's fables, right? Maybe you read them back in elementary school. One of the most famous of Aesop's parables, of course, is the story of the tortoise and the hare, right? We all probably are familiar with the story, right? Uh, It's a story with a point, right? And what's the point of the tortoise and the hare? Well, it's something like this. Slow and steady wins the race, right? So it's a story meant to convey some sort of message, some sort of moral. Biblical parables are similar, although not exactly the same, and we'll explore that in a moment. So what is a parable? Well, the Greek word, uh, parabole, is, is two words, para, which means alongside, and balo, which means to throw. So literally, a parable is something thrown beside, to throw something beside. It's the idea that you place something alongside something else in order to compare it uh, in, to make a point, if you will, right? And so what parables do is they use everyday, commonplace uh, experiences that the hearers of the parable would just be like, oh yeah, I know what that's all about, right? It, it, I've done that a thousand times, right? So common, everyday experiences with a spiritual meaning, right? One of my professors at seminary, and I, I kind of remember it well, he said a parable is simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So I've always thought about that, right? An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a word picture. It's meant to illuminate a spiritual lesson. See, one of the common features of parables that we'll see over the next few weeks is that there's just uh, common stuff. So Jesus is going to talk about dirt, and he's going to talk about seeds, and he's going to talk about rocks and wheat, and tares, and leaven, and pearls, things that were just sort of common. People could understand them. But here's the catch. A parable could be understood at least in its initial meaning. So take, for instance, the parable we'll see next week. It's the parable of a sower. And Jesus is going to talk about how the sower of a a farmer will take seed, and in that day he would just have a sack, and he'd he'd throw it everywhere, right? And that's, that's how they would plant. You just throw the seeds. And he's going to talk about, well, some of the seeds landed here. And some of the seeds landed in this type of soil. And some of the seeds landed in that type of soil. And then that's it. And so if you're hearing that, you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's what the farmer does. So what? Right? See, parables need interpretation. They need explanation. And so for the hearer of a parable, unlike sort of Aesop's fables, they'd be like, well, that's a great story, but what's the point? Right? Well, there's a spiritual truth that is being taught. However, it needs revealed, right? Jesus needs to come along and say, this is what I mean with this story. And that then gets us into verses 10 through 17 and the purpose of the parable. So here's, here's sort of the main point for the morning. Why did Jesus choose to teach in parables? Why did he choose to, to use stories that needed explaining well, I think there, um, there are two reasons. There's a dual purpose behind the parables. Number one, the first purpose 
for the parable is to reveal truth. Jesus wanted to reveal spiritual realities, truths to those who would believe in him. Jesus wanted to use these stories to convey information to those who already trusted in him as Savior, who were receptive to the truth. So point number one, purpose number one is to reveal. But purpose number two is that Jesus also told parables to conceal truth. Jesus told parables to conceal truth to those who rejected him, who did not want anything to do with him. And so verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? In other words, they understood that parables were hard to understand, right? And so they come to him. In fact, Mark tells us that they come to him after all of the parables had been spoken. And they say, why are you doing that? Why are you teaching in parables? Why are you teaching them if you don't bother to explain it to them, right? See, they got, they got it. And he gives two reasons. In verse 11, he, he says it's both to reveal and to conceal. That's his initial answer in verse 11. Notice, he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to what, church? What's the word? You. It's been given to you, right? To you disciples, to you who believe in me. This truth has been revealed to you, but not to what? What's the word? Them. Not to them. Disciples, I'm going to speak to the crowds in parables because I want you to understand some truths, and I don't want them to understand that same truth. You see that in verse 11? It's been given to you. I'm giving you further revelation, but I'm withholding it from them. Verse 12. Whoever has will be given more. In other words, if you have received me as Messiah, if you believe the things that I'm saying, I'm going to give you more truth. But if you don't, well, what does he say? Whoever has will be given given more, and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not have, that is, they don't receive the truth of Jesus and who he is, even what they have will be what? It will be taken from them, right? So he introduces the reason why he preaches in parables. Some people are receptive to God's truth. They will be given more. Some people are not receptive to God's truth, to the gospel, to who Jesus is. What they have will be what? Be taken away from them. Friends, just ponder the weight of that for a moment, if you will. Just ponder the weight of that. It matters how we respond to God's truth. Does it not? It matters. Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then he quotes Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them, referring to the, the, the generation of Jews in that day, for the most part, in them is fulfilled the the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
So there Jesus is reiterating that there is a concealing purpose in the parables. He's saying, this generation has rejected me. Their hearts are calloused. Their ears are closed. Their eyes are shut. They don't want to receive truth from me. So they're not going to get anymore. So purpose number one is to conceal. But then he says, but but there is a revealing purpose as well, right? Verse 16, but, notice the contrast, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so there's a revelatory purpose, and there is a purpose to conceal. And that leads us to our first of two truths for today. God reveals truth to the saved and receptive And he conceals it to the lost and the hardened. Pastor John MacArthur, in his commentary, I think helps us apply this when he says this. He says, all men and women are either progressively, or excuse me, are either progressing or regressing spiritually. No person remains static in his or her relationship to God. The longer a person knows and is faithful to Christ, the more his Lord is faithful to reveal his truth and power. However, the longer a person rejects the knowledge of God that he has, whether much or little, the less of God's truth he will understand. Friends, this is a truth, spiritually speaking. We need to seriously ask ourselves this question. If the words of Jesus of that generation apply to me, do they apply to me? It certainly is true of many people in our days. It can be said of many people And I pray, not in this church, but maybe in this church, of many people that their heart has become calloused to the things of God. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Friends, is your heart receptive to the truth of God? Does it welcome it? Does it long for it? Do you want to hear it? Or are your eyes closed? Are your ears deaf? Are you saying, Pastor, it's already time, and it is. Time to wrap up your sermon. I really don't care to hear any more of God's Word. Friends, there are two types of people in this world, and we're going to see that in a moment. But we need to ask ourselves, is this true of us? Is Jesus describing us and not just that generation, right? Are our eyes opened? Are our ears willing to hear? I recall a time, maybe a few weeks ago, when one of my daughters was doing something she should not do. And so I told her to not do it any longer. I rebuked her. I said, stop it. She did not want to hear that. Who likes being told no? None of us, right? She uh, did not receive that well. And I went on to try to explain why I told her to stop doing whatever it was that she was doing, right? I told her, stop it, and then I wanted to give the reason, right? You think she wanted to hear the reason? No, she did not want to hear the reason, and she physically told me so. I said, stop doing that, and she curled up in a ball and did this. And not only did she curl up in a ball and do this, but she did this. She did not want to see what I had to to show. She did not want to hear what I had to say. Friends, is that true of you with God? Because that's what Jesus is saying about that generation. And it is true even 
with some in our day. But there's a second spiritual truth, and we'll see it really throughout most of the parables, and it is this. There is a you and there is a them. There's a you and there's a them. Or, it would make more sense if I I said, there is an us and there is a them. What do I mean by that? What did Jesus say in verse 11? The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to what? You. True disciples who believe in him. But it is concealed to what? Them. In other words, Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, You, 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 you belong to me. And I know it. And you, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you do not. So Jesus can look at a crowd, and Jesus alone can look at a crowd and do this, by the way. But he can look at a crowd, and he sees two types of people. Because, friends, in reality, there are only two types of people in this world. You can be from Rwanda, or you can be from Cisna Park, Illinois, and there are two types of people in this world, right? Those who trust in Christ as their Savior and follow Him as Lord, and those who do not. Two types of people. And that is all throughout these parables, right? There is an us, and there is a them. Every single person on the planet falls into two eternally significant categories, right? Two types. Several years ago, and I'll make this quick, I was having an interaction with someone on Facebook, and and they were very offended about an article that was posted, and the article had to do with evangelism. And so I, I, I messaged this person because I, I wanted to know their objection to it. And, and I genuinely wanted to hear. And one of the objections basically had to do with the fact that Christians label people. That, that there's an us and a them. That there are those who are Christians who have trusted in Christ. And there are those who are not Christians and they haven't. And they were sort of offended that we would sort of label people, people in this way and have categories like that. Friends, let me ask you just a simple question. Does, does, does Jesus use those type of categories? Does he? Absolutely he does. Can we? Should we? I think we must. We may not know the difference until the end of the age, as the parable of the weeds is going to share share with us, but rest assured, Jesus knows, and it will be discovered at the end of the day. But friends, you can know which group you belong to. You can know which group you belong to. If you are a disciple of Christ, or if you are not, you can know. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have repented of sin and self and self-righteousness and trusted in His work, His life, His death, His resurrection for your sins, and you have been born again, and you have begun to follow Him as Lord, then you can know that you're in the, you're in the us, right? But friends, if you haven't, then you are in the them. But you don't have to stay in the them, okay? You can come over to the us side by repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. So I'm going to pray, and we'll be done. I'm going to ask us to stand. When we're done praying, we're going to read a scripture together. Would you pray with me, church? Father, I pray if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and they now are being convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they are a them. Lord, may they even now turn from their sin and their self, the right to rule over their lives and to do what they want, and may they recognize that their sin has offended eternally a holy God but that that God in love has sent His own Son to pay for those sins and to offer forgiveness and eternal life to be received by grace through faith and trust in Him. And may they turn even now. 
Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts. And for those of us who know that we are the us, may we rejoice knowing that our Heavenly Father delights to reveal truth to us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And God's people said, Amen. Would you stand as we read Matthew chapter 13, verse 16. Let's read this together as we leave. Here we go. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. God's people said amen. See you next week.